From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers. Today we'll look at a report on how gerrymandering has been used historically in Milwaukee and other city governments. We'll hear from one of Milwaukee's female arborists, then we'll learn about First Stage's new play, Dream Quickie Dream, inspired by Donald Driver's life. Reading where he had come from really inspired me. So I asked, is it all right if I incorporate his story within these stories of Quickie that he's telling to his children? Plus, we'll learn about the history of pull tabs and what makes them so unique. It's a very satisfying feeling of pulling those strips, kind of unzip them, and you see if you want a prize. All of that is coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers, and thank you so much for joining us. The Wisconsin Supreme Court, which recently gained a liberal majority, is taking up redistricting. For the past decade, gerrymandering has come to define our political landscape in Wisconsin. It's a process where district lines are drawn to politically advantage or disadvantage a party or politician. A 2021 report from the University of Chicago analyzed how three cities, Milwaukee, St. Louis, and Chicago, have historically used gerrymandering as a way to punish political speech and reward political favors. Robert Vargas led the research team, and he joined me when the study was first released to explain the different ways gerrymandering can impact city neighborhoods and local politics. One of the things that immediately pops out about this study is the kind of gerrymandering that we're actually talking about. Generally here in Wisconsin, we've heard about gerrymandering in terms of parties trying to gain a partisan advantage, specifically Republicans trying to get an advantage over Democrats. But when you began analyzing several cities, including Milwaukee, gerrymandering looks a bit different. Can you describe the kind of gerrymandering that you've seen at the city level here in Milwaukee? Yeah, I think the best analogy to make sense of it is think of it as a club that's regulating its membership and punishing some of its most outlandish members. Because in cities, one political party tends to be dominant, being the Democrats. And so historically, across each of the cities, redistricting was done to regulate members and essentially punish uh, members of the city council who had deviated most from the agendas of the dominant party or or of the mayor. You specifically noted specific issues that politicians were penalized for speaking out about. What were some of those? Yeah, so in Chicago and St. Louis, it was a case of elected officials who were speaking out against racial discrimination, elected officials who were calling for more regulation or at least a slower process for pursuing economic development in low-income Black and Brown communities. Because in particularly in in low-income minority areas, whenever you have discussions of economic development, residents often express very well-grounded concerns about gentrification and being priced out and not being able to benefit from these investments. And so historically what has happened in Chicago and in St. Louis is for city council members who have been some of the most outspoken on issues of equitable development and racial justice, 
their districts have been moved from one city to the other, which effectively cuts them off from their core constituency and makes it really difficult for them to run for office in the new district. But also the, the area that was left behind, sort of like their former area, their former constituency was broken up into multiple districts. And so this is a way of effectively coercing city council members into early retirement or just uh, eradicating them politically. What did that look like here in Milwaukee? Milwaukee was the most distinct from Chicago and St. Louis because the archives suggested that from a data standpoint, it was hard to directly assess these kinds of processes because Milwaukee for a long time, up until the 90s, didn't collect data on the racial background of individual voters. And so from a statistical standpoint, it was actually pretty difficult to pin down when a redrawing was, was, had similar racial and economic motivations. But the one thing that we did find in Milwaukee was how these discourses of race and class appeared really powerfully in the 1950s when Milwaukee was trying to annex some of its uh, suburbs. Milwaukee overall in its history hasn't been very successful at annexing its suburbs, but it was successful in 1956 at annexing the, the towns of Lake and Granville. And it was able to achieve this by offering these towns their own districts in the city council. And so at the time, the city council was, was planning to be reduced. I believe it was from 19 to 18 wards. But then once discussions got serious over an annexation, the city of Milwaukee pivoted and offered to keep an additional ward for uh, the town of Lake. And so what happened was that the boundaries of the 19th and 20th wards at the time of Milwaukee were moved and provided to the towns of Lake and Granville so that their entire towns can reside in one of these districts and they could therefore have, have, have a say. And this is where the intersections of race and class matter, particularly because some of the biggest concerns for the city of Milwaukee at the time were concerns over race and economics, concerns over the, the influx of African-Americans into the city and predominantly white residents being, being concerned about that for discriminatory reasons, but also concerns over the declining tax base of the city as you know, cities across the country were losing population to suburbs and places like Milwaukee were trying everything they can to continue to have some sort of revenue source. And so there aren't too many examples like that in the historical record, but Milwaukee and by and large has been a unique place for these kind for these kinds of dynamics. As we look at the history of Milwaukee, but also Chicago and St. Louis, I'm curious how you came to the conclusion it was being used in a punitive way. What we were able to uncover were instances nearly every decade since the 1950s where this kind of thing has happened. And so mainly the, the main point and contribution of the study was to provide researchers and the public with a different language for understanding how gerrymandering can happen. And so there, there are terms like cracking and packing, which are consistently used in the redistricting lexicon to describe dynamics between Democrats and Republicans. There are four entirely different kinds of redistricting practices that take place in locations where one party is dominant. And these were suppressive redistricting, 
disciplinary redistricting, remunerative redistricting, and transactional redistricting. And so what unfolded in Milwaukee was what we call transactional redistricting, where uh, Milwaukee was essentially giving away a seat, an award to suburbs that it was trying to annex as part of this uh, negotiation of terms for the, the towns of Lake and Granville to enter the city of Milwaukee. That has happened in other places, but I think that, for example, is a really important example of the need to develop a more diverse language to describe the kinds of practices that happen with redistricting, um, because in the absence of this kind of work, what often happens in cities, in cities with redistricting, is these manipulative practices will get passed with very little oversight, in part because folks aren't digging through the data and sifting to find out, okay, what are the real motivations going on here? Why is it important to better understand these types of redistricting? I think it's incredibly important because we think of cities as being places where one party is dominant and it's the liberal party. And history shows that in cities, the quote unquote liberal party actually hasn't been all that liberal. In fact, they've been quite conservative, both on topics related to race and economic development. And so we shouldn't allow the debate and conflict between Democrats and Republicans, which is important in its own right, but we shouldn't allow that debate to obscure manipulative forms of anti-democratic practice done in cities. We shouldn't uh, lose sight of, of these kinds of manipulative practices that can happen in cities. There isn't a ton of research on redistricting in one party context. And my hope is that um, this kind of work could help both scholars and journalists and citizen groups ask the right questions and question the logics and, and push to make the remapping processes as transparent as possible, both from local governments sharing data, which is happening to some degree in some places and not so much in others, in order for the public to have as much a say on the process as possible. All right. Well, Robert, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect. Thank you so much for this conversation. It was great. Robert Vargas is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Chicago, and he led the research team of a report on gerrymandering in local governments. We spoke in 2021. You can find the latest coverage on gerrymandering in the state at wuwm.com. From Milwaukee's NPR, this is Capital Notes. We break down the big political news affecting Wisconsin. I'm Ayan Silver, speaking with J.R. Ross, editor of wispolitics.com. He provides a roundup of the Wisconsin developments you need to know. Here's our latest conversation. Hi, JR. Thanks for joining me. Anytime. So we're usually pretty hyper-local and focused on Capital Notes, but of course, national and international politics affects life here. I wanted to start with what we can learn about Wisconsin's GOP congressional representatives based on the struggle happening right now over House Speaker in Congress. Republicans who control the House of Representatives are having kind of a doozy of a time electing a speaker. Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio, a staunch Trump supporter, failed on a third ballot for the gavel Friday. 
Where have Wisconsin's six conservative congressmen landed in this discussion and why? Well, when they've been voting, they've been voting for Jim Jordan, the Republican out of Ohio. Now, Derek Van Orden, who's been a Jordan supporter, he left on a fact-finding mission to Israel after the kind of first couple rounds of, of impasse, saying there's no clear path forward for a speaker right now. But they've been sticking with Jordan. Uh, they're all pretty conservative. What's going to be interesting is if this kind of impasse continues, especially for a person like Van Orden. Remember, Derek Van Orden was elected to the Western Wisconsin 3rd Congressional District last fall, uh, freshman. He had a pretty good fundraising number the third quarter, which ended September 30th. We saw reports not too long ago. He raised more than $800,000, which was the best three-month period of any member of the congressional delegation. He also, though, got a good chunk of change from a PAC that was run by Kevin McCarthy. He was the speaker who was deposed um, the motion to vacate the chair. Now, the big question going forward is, what's McCarthy going to do as a fundraiser, or what can he do as a fundraiser going forward? The guy has got great connections, raises a lot of money. Will he be as inspired to keep raising those checks? Will donors be as inspired to give them to him? Because that affects people like Van Orden. Also, who's going to be that next speaker? Because can he or she raise big money? Um, because that money helps a person like Van Orden. You know, I mean, uh, when it comes to key races, you often see national forces come in and spend lots of money. If there's an ongoing impasse in Washington, D.C., it kind of prevents somebody from taking the lead rein on who's going to raise funds. And oh, by the way, the longer it drags on, a question I've heard from people is, does it send a message to voters that Republicans have a hard time governing? Does that make people go, ah, this Van Orden guy, he's part of that you know group over there that can't shoot straight? Also, it affects Van Orden because as long as there's no speaker, there's no farm bill. Uh, Derek Van Orden has tried very hard during his time in Congress to uh, create some bipartisan credentials. He got a lot of grief during the 2022 campaign over being at the Capitol grounds on January 6, 2021. Now he says he left before there was an attack or anything like that, or kind of like violent protest, but he was there. People raised concerns about his temperament. There was an incident with Senate pages this summer, things like that going on that you know, Van Orden's uh, sometimes had a little bit of a, some run-ins, some questions about his temperament. So that's kind of interesting to watch, too, just how that whole thing plays out for, for him going forward. And if whoever takes over as speaker, if when it push comes to shove and they try to, who they're going to give money to, if they're going, well, this guy keeps making kind of self-inflicted errors, uh, do I want to give money to Derek Van Orden? It, it's uh, lots of questions for him and how the speaker race plays out, how he gets the money. And oh, by the way, can he get a farm bill done? Because they get a farm bill done, it helps burnish those bipartisan credentials and maybe... For people back in the third district, that's more important than whether he blew up at members of the Biden administration giving a briefing on Israel, for example. Why should the average Wisconsinite care about what's happening in the third district and how would that affect sort of the balance, the race in 2024 for the House of Representatives in, in Congress? We're talking a handful of votes, seats right now that could switch that chamber. That's a big deal to have one of We'll see how the third CD ranks in the pecking order of most contested seats. Actually, it's kind of interesting that district. If Trump is the nominee for Republicans, he maybe helps Van Orden more than anybody else. There's a lot of Trump voters in that district who don't come out regularly. But, you know, if that district sways who's going to win control of the House, that's a big deal if there's a President Biden term two, right? If it is a President Trump and a Republican Congress, whole different ballgame. So you're talking about control of one chamber of government that could be decided by a dozen, 20 seats. We'll see where the Van Orden one falls in the pecking order. But that's why it's a big deal is because it could play into that, that majority-making coalition for Republicans or Democrats.
So moving on to something else that has also had some importance nationally and internationally, it's the Israel-Hamas conflict. How is that issue developing locally? There have been some resolutions that passed the legislature and some differing opinions from Republicans in the state and some Democrats. What's Is anything going on there? For the most part, we've just seen a resolution pass the Senate and the Assembly uh, overwhelmingly with the unanimous. There were a couple of Democrats in the Milwaukee area who did not vote on the resolution was for the Assembly last week. Um, that got them some gruff. But for the most part, we're not seeing anybody really take a position that's that contrary to the Biden administration. It's basically called to support Israel. Uh, that's really kind of been the, the main position of the members of the Senate and the Assembly, to those resolutions at least. We have seen some Democrats kind of like raise concerns or not paying enough attention to the plight of Palestinians. For the most part, though, the focus has been on Israel uh, for the states, state lawmakers and the state congressional delegation. You're tuned into Capital Notes. I'm Ayan Silver speaking with J.R. Ross, editor of WizPolitics.com. Um, let's continue with something that we haven't really covered in depth on Capital Notes. That's the ongoing fight of the UW system's diversity, equity, and inclusion spending. So uh, Assembly Speaker, GOP Assembly Speaker Robin Voss had promised to block pay raises for tens of thousands of UW employees while approving raises for other state workers. That's until the school system, according to him, would cut DEI spending by $32 million. In full disclosure, WWM employees are UW system employees. How did this all start and where is it going? Well, for Robin Voss, this has become kind of his cause. Like somebody told me some months back, this person likened it to how Ron DeSantis of Florida has gone to war with Florida. Robin Voss has gone to war with DEI. And with the system, Robin was a graduate of the system. He, I'm a former student regent on the Board of Regents. He has just become focused on this issue and is determined to try and find a way to snuff out DEI programs. Now, one of the challenges for him is, UW system, or the Universities of Wisconsin, I guess I should say now, has what's called position authority. It means that it can create its own position. So whereas other agencies, lawmakers can set how many jobs you have, it doesn't happen with this system. Now they can do it on its own. So one of the ways for Robin to try and put pressure on the system has been to focus on one, uh, the cut of $32 million, which is currently sitting in a, an account reserved for the uh, budget committee known as joint finance. Um, it can release that money at any time if the university asks for it. The university has to say we're going to spend it on workforce development issues. But without any movement on DEI, that's unlikely to happen. And the second thing is these raises. During the budget process, lawmakers don't actually approve the raises. They fund the raises for state employees. So during the budget, they did the money, put, a, put the money aside to pay for these pay increases, which are, they believe, 4% the first year and 2% the second for public employees. Now, there are still a handful of unions that represent uh, state employees out there, but for the most part, you have state employees, and then the UW system is a separate kind of pot of money. This committee, uh, called the Joint Committee of Employment Relations, took up those pay raises to actually implement them, and in doing so, it did not take up the UW system pay raises. Those are still in limbo. Now, what's interesting for people I've talked to is Robin Boss said, okay, here's a, here's a path forward. If the university would agree to give us, lawmakers, position authority, which would be give up that authority they have now, we could find a way through this. That is a legitimate offer, people tell me, but not a likely one to be accepted because if you are the system and you accept that change, you're putting yourself at the mercy of Republicans and possibly a cooperative governor to start cutting jobs. 
Uh, they don't want to do that. Uh, they want to avoid that situation. They're like in a real tough spot right now of how they get pay raises. And it doesn't just affect, you know, people who are administrators who come under the DEI umbrella. There are lots of janitors, um, staff. You'll go on the list, not just professors impacted by this. How do they get those pay raises to employees? Also worth noting that Howard Markline, Republican from Platteville, is a co-chair of the Budget Committee. Um, he also serves on that committee we call JOKER that approves his pay raises. He was not happy that the UW system pay raises are not being taken up. He wants to see them pushed through. But as long as Robin Voss is dug in, unless the universities of Wisconsin give something up, it's hard to see how they get what they're after, which is that pay raise. So procedurally, why is there this hang-up? Can you explain for the average person who doesn't follow the legislative system, really, I mean, Evers can't just veto this funding decision or anything like that? Like, can you can you explain that? Yeah, so in the, the raise process, the pay, pay process for state employees, you fund the raises in the budget, and you kind of set what the parameters are going to be, but you have to have that joint community employment relations come and actually approve implementing the pay raises. So... They were funded in the budget for UW system and everybody else. The committee came in and actually implemented the raise for most state employees and those handful of unions, but they are not moving on implementing the raise for UW system employees. And until they move to implement them, it's not going anywhere. And if you look at that committee and the makeup, the Democrats on that committee would vote to implement those pay raises for the system. Uh, but as long as Robin Voss, who co-chairs it, is saying no, they're probably going to move on that package. This is affecting tens of thousands of, of mm -hmm. employees. What do you see as the next steps? There's obviously this negotiation happening. Uh, they're planning to meet uh, later this week to continue negotiations. But what do you know about, about how this could play out? Well, the question is, what will the system give up to get what it wants? Um, from what I can tell, the system is kind of dug in on DEI. They don't want to give up those positions. They argue there is real benefit to having them. For example, a lot of big employers in Wisconsin and nationally, they have DEI programs. If you want to prepare UW students for the workforce, they argue, you should prepare them for that DEI culture. Uh, so unless I give that up, I'm not sure how they get out of this mess right now. Or we are seeing some small changes, these programs. I don't know that's enough to win over Robin Boss at this point, but he holds a lot of cards in this debate and what's gonna happen with the system. And have you ever heard of something else funding-wise being, quote-unquote, held hostage like this via legislative committee? You know, I've seen funding be held up for various things, but for employee raises, no. This is the first for me to see employee raises targeted for the system like this. And what was the power structure that allowed something like this to happen? There's no checks and balances to prevent things like this? No. They set up the system so that UW is on its own, separate from other state employees for... These pay raises, the process goes through the legislature and the governor with the budget to fund them, and then this committee has to approve them, and that's it. They have a big sway over implementing. They also, quite frankly, I'm not sure they envision this being a problem when the system was set up. They, they weren't expecting something like this, but Robin Voss has found a way to put pressure on the system to get what he wants. All right, well, thanks for digging into these uh, developments, JR, and thanks for joining me on Capital Notes. Anytime. That was WUWM's Mayan Silver, speaking with J.R. Ross of WIS Politics. You can hear Capital Notes every other Monday on Lake Effect. 
In about 10 minutes, we'll tell you about a play based on the life of legendary Green Bay Packer Donald Driver. But first, there are nearly 70 arborists working for the city of Milwaukee, but only a few of them are women. We'll hear from one of them next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. Milwaukee Mayor Cavalier Johnson recently announced the city was awarded $12 million in federal funding to add to our urban forest. The city will focus on planting trees in neighborhoods that lack canopy cover. There are about 70 arborists and apprentices on Milwaukee's forestry team that will tackle this work, and only four of them are women. Hannah Novicki is one of them. She speaks with WUWM's environmental reporter, Susan Benz, about her work as an arborist. So what pulled you into your field? Well, I finished college, and I realized that I hated sitting in front of a computer. I despised it. And so I just realized that I needed a job, and I just kept getting further and further. And uh, this was an apprenticeship, so it was one of the first ones, actually, I'm pretty sure, in the U.S. Um, so, I'm, so I'm one of like the first people in the state of Wisconsin like 11th I think uh, to be like a certified journeyman by the state um, because so what was the process so it's uh, 9,000 hours of That's state a lot of hours. yep so it's about four and a half years after everything's said and done um, but it's all very like specific um, you know dirt you know so like um, lift work so we also use lift buckets um, tree planting hours uh, tree climbing um, we also have a nursery out in Franklin it's about 100 years old, and we have like our original greenhouses there. So that's where we plant, we grow all our own trees there, flowers that also is used for like Summerfest. So it's just really learning a lot of different aspects is what comes to the hours. And we also take like a class at MATC, you to get your CDL. Um, Fabulous. Yeah, so there's just, a, there's a lot of stuff to it. Um, so were you into nature and trees before you took this path in particular? Yeah, I, so I went to Stevens Point actually, and I went there for land use management and planning, and I uh, minored in soils and GIS. Um, and that's when I realized that was all computer work. So then I jumped to the DNR and I was a um, summer park ranger up at Peninsula State Park. Decided to come down here. When did you finish your apprenticeship? So I started in 18, so last October was when officially I became a certified journeyman. Wow. And uh, these two, um, uh, Marshawn and Laurent, and one of the other guys that was a crew or two after me, they're actually just finishing up there, so they'll also be journeymen soon too. So is this the the path that you followed mm -hmm. and that you were one of the first in the state, mm -hmm. right, or the 11th or whatever? Mm -hmm. Is this now the process anyone takes? and ultimately becoming a part of the Milwaukee forestry? Yes and no. So mainly now we do do the apprenticeship path. That is our main goal. It's just a more rounded training. Oh, yeah. um, however, because like any place, staffing is so incredibly hard to find, we do um, once in a while, like currently we are right now, we'll open up um, a specialist spot where you, if you already have five years of, of training, um, which is about the same length as the apprenticeship, um, you know, we'll hire you on and you can kind of skip that process. 
once you're a journeyman and a specialist, there's no pay difference or anything. So it's not, again, you just get a little bit more hands-on training with um, mm-hmm. the apprenticeship. But yeah, we do sometimes open it where you can fast track and you won't be a journeyman, um, but you can still come in with the city and get all those benefits. So so what's your day to day? So that's, that's a really fun thing about this job. And I think that's why I really love it is that you can be on something different every day. So like transition period right now, I could be in a lift bucket for a couple days or we're gonna be start planting soon. So you could be on a planting crew, you could be trunk dropping, you can be climbing is coming up soon. So there's just always a rotation of stuff to do. Do you have, I mean, it feels like you're enjoying where you're at and what, what every day brings. But oh yeah. Like down the road, it's like, is there something that you'd like to be your specialty? I mean, I mean, yes and no. I mean, ideally, if the opportunity does arise where I can get more involved, you know, move up into a position that might be a little bit more on like the manager side, you know, more that kind of. It does. it does, but also this job currently beats your body. So I'm not. I'm. I'm talking about maybe like in 20 years, you know, where I'm, you know, sitting down maybe at like, you know, close to retirement. But you know, there's also we have other jobs. So we have like a, it's called a tech position, and it's forestry tech, um, and so that kind of is more hands-on dealing like with. Um, construction, working with, um, you know, trees and, you know, zoning and stuff, which is kind of more what I was, went to school for in a way. So there's opportunities, which I think is great about this place. If you don't like this, you can go over to sanitation and, you know, hop around, come back if you want. It's forever open. So the idea that kids would be here Mm -hmm. would be that you could inspire future foresters, obviously. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's the one thing. I'm not the best climber but I'm a hard worker and that kind of offsets because climbing isn't the only thing here, you know? Um, and I was on training crew and you have to do timing sheets. And so you have to like average a timeout to get, it's like a whole thing. Anyways, I was just having a bad day and I was down on myself and I, you know, I had all my gear. I'm trying to get to the next tree and I'm like crying because I was just doing so bad. And a group of kids, like little girls were walking to school and one goes, it's the winter time. So I have made all my scarf on and they're like, are you a girl? And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, do you do what the boys do? Yeah. And they're like, oh, wow. And I'm like, that gave me like just like this little bit of juice where I was like, I got this. Because they were all, they're like, you do that too? They're like, we can do that? And I'm like, yeah, you can do anything. <laughs> so that was, that was fun. Hannah Novicki is a journeyman arborist with the City of Milwaukee Forestry Division. She spoke with WUWM environmental reporter Susan Bentz. People may know Donald Driver as a former champion football player on the Green Bay Packers. But Driver is also an accomplished children's book author with a popular series all about a boy named Quickie. These books are the inspiration for a new play at first stage called Dream Quickie Dream. To learn more about the play, Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski spoke with playwright Gloria Bond Clooney and director DeMonte Henning. Clooney begins by explaining how she became involved in adapting Quickie for the stage. It's really exciting because... Jeff Frank, who is the artistic director at First Stage, an amazing human being, called and said, how would you like to adapt a set of children's books that Donald wrote for an upcoming production? So I said, yeah, that's exciting, but I I need to let you know I'm not a football person. But the name sounded so familiar. And um, 
while he was talking, I looked it up and realized it was Donald Driver who won Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> and I had seen him that night. Do the, I mean, he does a mean pasta dobla. I mean, that's an athlete and an artist. And so <laughs> based on that, I said, wow, that sounds really great. Let's talk. And Jeff sent me the books. And what really hooked me was I read his autobiography, Driven, which is the story of his life. And literally, it is a story of him going from being homeless to a hero, to a champion. Uh, he grew up in a very rough neighborhood in Houston. So reading where he had come from really inspired me. And so I asked, is it all right if I incorporate his story within these stories of Quickie that he's telling to his children, as Quickie says to Daddy Donald, he says, if we don't tell him where we've come from, then how will we know who you are? How will we know how you became this remarkable, strong, positive, kind champion? So Jeff set up an interview with uh, Donald, which lasted over four hours. And he's an amazing individual, um, worthy of telling this story for uh, children and also for adults. So it's been an amazing journey. And then working with DeMonte, you know, when you put a brilliant team together, I mean, DeMonte is the director, uh, Christopher Gilbert is an amazing choreographer, and we have Antoine Reynolds, who put some of the words that I put on the page as rap, he made them come alive. So there's a lot of dancing and movement. And so DeMonte is like the secret sauce that's made everything come together. <laughs> yeah. Yes, DeMonte, let's bring you in here. So you are the director of this debut, a new work. What does Quickie and this character mean to you? And how were you feeling when this project was first brought to you? Before you worked on the whole development process, what were your initial feelings about the possibility of being involved in something like this? You know, I was incredibly grateful to, to number one, be back at, at First Stage, because I believe that First Stage is an incredible organization. But when Jeff first uh, approached this project to me, I was grateful, I was excited because I, I knew of Donald Driver's story, but I didn't know a whole lot about it. It wasn't until I, I read his children's books uh, and then I read his autobiography and I just, just became so engulfed in his story where he came from, the fact that he continued to pursue his dreams, even though the environment around him, everything around him was telling him to go in a different direction. He still uh, was able to have his dream, work hard at his dream, have people around him in his neighborhood that helped foster his dreams, that helped build his self-confidence so that he could chase his dream. So reading those books um, and learning about his life just put me in a whole nother mindset to direct this play. Then I, I read the play that Ms. Gloria wrote and I, it just, it was so honest. It was so true to the experiences that he lived through 
And then you couple that with the music, the rap that's brought into the the play. You couple that with the movement, uh, the football style choreography that's going to be throughout the show. It just elevates the play even more from a theatrical standpoint. And for me, uh, I was just talking to the cast about this on Sunday. What's so important for me is that in in telling this show is that we don't know who's going to be in the audience and who's going to watch this show, Uh, specifically young people. I want young people to walk away feeling like they have a little chip on their shoulder, feeling like that they have this dream, that they can work hard at it, and that it's achievable, that they can do it. Because Donald was in their shoes. We may have children who come see this show who live in poverty, much like Donald. But you're more than just the four corners of your house. You're more than just that block that you live on. You have a story to tell. You have people around you who want to do great. Um, So it's a very, very important story for me because I have a dream. We all have dreams. The show title itself is encouraging. Dream, quickie, dream. That's a chant in itself. And we're doing a lot of that in this show. So there's so much to take away from this play. You just have to come and see it. You mentioned there's some musical elements, the football style choreography. Can you share a bit more about the the fun challenges that presented itself to you as director to take this creative premise of young Quickie leading a new father, adult Donald Driver, through his life memories and stories and, and how to kind of have Quickie as that guide between the two? Yeah, I love that you said fun challenges because that's great. That That's, that's so important. Um, you know, I've, I've worked with Antoine, who's our music director. I've worked with him a number of times and I, and I trusted him to uh, lead the show musically. I think the the music is an anchor for Donald and Quickie in this story. They use the music to help put uh, his young son away. And being a father of a four-year-old, so not too far removed from where Donald is at with his newborn, uh, I, I, I had to tap into some tactics that I did to help put my son <laughs> to sleep. Um, so it's just been a, a really great joy being able to play with the actors in the room and figure out what different ways, what different tactics can we use to help put this baby to sleep. Then you have uh, the choreography, which is, uh, and I I told my cast, I said, by the end of the show, you all will walk away toned, right? You're not gonna walk, not not muscular, but you're gonna be, be toned because the movement in this show really drives it as well as as the music, uh, pun intended with the driving. <laughs> uh, it really <laughs> drives the story because football was such an important uh, aspect of Donald's life, sports in general. You'll see oftentimes throughout the play that Quickie uses football as an escape to um, help him figure out, you know, how it how he uh, can stand up to bullies, how he can uh be more responsible with uh, uh the responsibilities that his mother gives him right and so the football field is the center of of our play it's the center of the set and for myself i like to use art as a form of escapism whenever i'm feeling angry or happy or sad i sing a song i dance and that's exactly what's happening in this show so there have been some uh, fun challenges, but I think the cast is knocking it out the park. The music is original. I cannot wait for you to hear the music. The show takes place in the 80s, so it's a very much 80s hip hop run DMC type of vibe uh, that, that we're doing with this show. And it's unique, it's in your face. There's a lot of audience participation, which I love that Ms. Gloria 
put into the show. And there are moments where you're literally going to feel like you're at a football game. And that's great. Obviously, Donald's story has impacted you both in one, learning about it, and then two, developing this play. So what values from Donald or the character Quickie did you feel were central to make sure you portrayed them to the audience? Or what values are most important to you that are sticking with you as you continue to work? I think very much it's captured in the title, Dream Quickie Dream, that particularly at this time, we need to dream as a country, as families. We need to set our goals higher and then work it. So the idea of having a dream, working hard for it, and Donald talked about that a great deal, like in the interview, and you see it come out in the book, and and in Driven, uh, and also community and family. What I love about the set and the cast, it's like a dream team, really, because they're teamed as performers, but also teamed as a family. And I think that's um, a metaphor for the story that Donald um, has lived in his life. Yeah, and if I could just you know touch briefly on that, I think Ms. Gloria, you you knocked it out the park with. I, I love the community aspect of it. It takes a village, and I think that you know it's it's so important that we also mention the Mr. Peters that we mention you know the mother of the story because um, they're so important and made such an impact on Donald's life. And I love the way that Mama is written. She is very stern, but there's also a loving side to her. And I think that loving side, that that sternness and that loving side, to me, what it tells me is that you're allowed to make mistakes, but as long as you are aware of those mistakes and that you just continue to to do better, you're continuing moving towards the right decision. Um, And I think that Mama is that anchor in that story for me. She holds Quickie accountable, but she also gives some of the most loving hugs that you can see Uh, from a mother on stage. And so I think it's that community aspect also coupled with having a dream and working hard for that dream. It's not going to happen overnight. You're going to have obstacles. Persevere through them. Know that you're allowed to make mistakes, you know, as long as you're, you're, you're keeping moving in that right direction. Gloria Bond Clooney is the playwright, and DeMonte Henning is the director of Dream Quickie Dream. The play was co-commissioned by First Stage and the Marcus Performing Arts Center, and is on stage through October 29th. Clooney and Henning spoke with Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski, and you can find more information at wuwm.com. If you can't go to a bar without picking up some pull tabs, you'll want to stick around. We'll learn about the history of pull tabs and how they became a staple in tavern culture in Wisconsin, next on Lake Effect. This is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. If you've ever been to a corner bar in Wisconsin, chances are you've seen a pull tab machine. They're a staple of tavern culture in the state, a form of light gambling that brings together families and friends while they share a pitcher and talk about the Packers. Writer T. Krulos explored the history and legality of pull tabs in an article for Milwaukee Magazine. He joins me now to explore the culture of pull tabs. T, thank you so much for being here on Lake Effect. Thanks for having me. 
If you had just moved to Milwaukee, you've never seen one of these machines before, how would you describe it? A pull tab machine. Um, they're found in a lot of bars across the state. And you, you put a buck into it, or five bucks, and then you get a game piece. And uh, you flip it over, and there's these strips on the back. And it's a very satisfying feeling of pulling those strips, kind of unzip them, and you see if you want a prize. And it's not going to be a big prize, like you're not going to be able to retire from your day job, but they typically pay out a few dollars. The maximum you can win on one is $250. So it's this kind of a fun thing that friends like to do at a bar. You get a bunch of pull tabs, you sit there unzipping them, seeing if uh, anyone won. And a lot of times that money is just put into buying more beer or buying more pull tabs so you can keep playing. Full disclosure, I would say about a month back, I had friends who were in town, uh, one of whom is a Wisconsinite, loves pull tabs, and I did win a you dollar. Did. A dollar. I was going <laughs> to say, the, pull tabs. the most I've won is two dollars. So. Yeah. <laughs> which, which seems pretty standard, but one of the things that your article got into right away, which I have never really thought about before, is... Why are they legal? Like, I, for whatever reason, this had never occurred to me. But, yeah, it is odd that they are legal. Yeah, that's what started the whole story. My editor just wanted me to find out the answer to that question. And I found that the story behind it is pretty complicated, actually. Uh, it goes back to the late 90s. There was a guy named Walter Borer who was in the business of what they call coin-operated amusement machines. So he provided pinball and jukeboxes, stuff like that. And as sort of his retirement plan, he came up um, with Wisconsin Souvenir Melcaps, which is the pull tab company. And uh, he created this by very seriously studying Wisconsin Statute 100.16. There are exceptions to gambling in that. You can create sweepstakes, Right? So it is actually a sweepstakes. You can write to the company and they will mail you a game piece. But of course, most people prefer to play it at a bar while they're enjoying a beer. Um, The other thing is if you can attach your thing to something of value, and this is why if you've ever played like McDonald's Monopoly, that's legal is because you get some French fries along with your game piece. So Walter thought about this, and his argument is that on the front of the pull tab, there's a circular design, and that that design can be cut out and saved as a collectible pog. So that is sort of the loophole, if that's what you want to call it, is that you're actually paying for this collectible pog, not the game piece on the back, necessarily. So um, he had to um, go to court, because in the late 90s, he was raided, they confiscated his pull tabs, and he was like, no, no, you don't, because I actually put a lot of thought into this. So he went to court, and they admitted that, you know, he was in the right and that what he was doing is legal. The Wisconsin Department of Revenue is a little skeptical of this uh, from talking to them, and they're like, come on, really a pog? But I don't know. I don't think it's a bad argument. I mean... I don't think there's a lot of POG collectors out there, but people collect vinyl and VHS tapes, and I'm people sure there's POG collectors all out there, People collect all kinds too. of things. I used to, and still have a small collection, 
of potato chip bags. <laughs> okay. See, yeah, people love to Weird collect things. different <laughs> different things. Now, it does seem like there is a bit of fancy footwork in order to make them legal using this kind of idea of well, you know, the pog. That that that's really this uh, this is what people are buying. Uh, but as you say, it was fought out in courts. Uh, pull tabs won ostensibly. Now, are all pull tab machines today are they all legal or? No, I mean, according to what I found, Wisconsin souvenir mail caps are the ones that are operating legally because they do follow those guidelines from statute 100.16. So other pull tabs that you see out there are probably not legal because, you know, they don't have that collectible feature. You also have to keep records of certain winnings. You have to clearly state the odds on your game piece. There's a lot of, like, little details that you have to follow, and... Some of those other companies are just kind of making, like, knockoff pull tabs, I guess I would call them. Hmm. It's interesting to think about them in that context just because they're such a Wisconsin thing. I think they're also popular in some other Midwestern states like uh, Minnesota, for example. But uh, they are such a kind of cultural touch point. What do you think makes them so popular among people? I mean, I think it, it it works so well in Wisconsin just because the tavern culture here is so strong. It's um, uh, most people spend some time hanging out in a bar, and uh, this is something to kind of keep your hands busy. Something social you can do with another person. There is that thrill, you know. Even when I won two dollars, I was like, <laughs> "Hey, I'm a winner! I won two bucks," you know. But but like you say, they're very popular here. They're they're even more popular in our neighbor. Minnesota is the biggest state for pull tabs, and um, and they do exist in other states. They usually have a different name. That's more of like a localized thing. But yeah, it's a big part of the tavern culture here in general. An interesting sidebar to the story is I talked to an artist who makes this really cool art out of discarded pull tabs. So he has friends that collect them at different bars, and then he carefully. Cuts out the icons. They have icons like, you know, slot machine, fruit, and stuff like that. And he makes um, these sort of uh, collage or mosaics, I guess would be the right word, where he will, um, you know, create a scene from a video game or a landscape or something. It's pretty cool use of old pull tabs. Definitely better than uh, crumpling them up and putting them in your pocket. Yeah. <laughs> well, T, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect. Thanks for having me. T. Krulos is a freelance writer based in Milwaukee. We spoke earlier this year. And that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. If you missed any of today's conversations, or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll hear from a Milwaukee judge who is part of the first generation of kids desegregating a southern school district. And you might think you know about the city's history with cream-colored brick, but think again. We'll share a little-known fact about just what's in those bricks tomorrow at noon, right here on Lake Effect, on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.